So as we, get, as we begin this morning, I'll just say a word about where we're going in our studies. Uh, this week, we're going to finish out chapter 21. And then uh, there's something very interesting about the end of chapter 21, this, this episode that we're going to look at here where David goes and is in the presence of, of Achish, king of Gath. And the interesting thing about these last few verses is that during this time, David actually wrote two of his psalms. He wrote Psalm 56, first of all, when he was afraid of what he was facing during this time. And then he wrote Psalm 34 on the other side of being delivered from this particular episode. So both of those psalms, we know that from the superscript of those psalms. You can look it up, and that's part of the inspired text. We know the occasion on which they were written. And they were each written in connection with this episode, which, which makes us recognize something uniquely significant about them because David was also under pressure in the last episode, but he didn't, we don't have a psalm recorded about his incident there with Ahimelech and Nob and all of that. So there's something unique about this. And so what, what we're going to do is we're going to re- work through this narrative today. And then for our next studies, we're actually going to take Psalm 56 next week which is how David responds to the fear he feels in this chapter. And we're going to think about that, having studied this already, so we'll have the context. And then the next time, actually the next week Josh will preach, and then following that, we're going to take Psalm 34 and think about, uh, think about David's response to the deliverance. So we're going to live with this narrative a little bit. We'll have that one uh, break in between. I'll have been back at a, at a conference, um, and so, so Josh is going to be preaching that weekend, even though I'm here. Uh, but then we'll, we'll get back to this. So that's kind of where we're going. If you can remember all that, I don't know. But, but in your own meditation over the next few weeks, you can work Psalm 56 and Psalm 34 in, especially now having the background of this particular incident. Uh, it will make those poems that much more meaningful. But all that to say, this morning we finished 1 Samuel 21. And in finishing this chapter, we remind ourselves uh, that we're really just at the beginning of what's described as David's wilderness wanderings. We talked about that a little bit last week, but, but we know David has been anointed by God as king over Israel uh, through the prophet Samuel. We know David has even proved himself the one strong to rescue God's people. He's uh, brought victory for the people of Israel. However, Saul, the king whom the Lord has now rejected, but still the, the, the reigning king in that political sense, Saul still holds his position. He won't give up his throne And instead, he has determined to uh, kill David. Saul wants David dead, obviously. Uh, David is a threat to Saul's rebellious reign, and he wants David gone. He's ordered his administration to prioritize uh, David's assassination. And and David, who once enjoyed a primacy object of Israel's excitement and all of the frustration, David, uh, who's, who's been the object of Israel's excitement and all of these things, he's now on the run. He's had to leave the comforts of the royal courts, uh, David can't even go back to his family in Bethlehem uh, because it's, it's become very clear that Saul will do just about anything he can in order to put, uh, put David to death. So, so he's on the run, God's anointed king, David, he's out in the wilderness. And as we began thinking about this last week, it's in these wilderness episodes, about 15 of them as the rest of 1 Samuel unfolds, it's in these wilderness episodes that we find uh, both what we could call a mirror and a finger. Uh, There's a mirror, in a sense, as we look at David's own suffering, his own season of difficulty, we can find extraordinary encouragement for our own seasons of difficulty. How David navigated these days, even though they're days that are immediately experientially different than anything we may have faced, but in how David navigated his days, we find encouragement for our own times of hardship. So there's a mirror, in a sense, as we come to a passage like this. 
And as we always know, as we study the Old Testament, there's also a finger. And that there's also a finger pointing us forward to the climax of of God's anointed kingship and the coming of the Lord Jesus and what it ultimately means to uh, follow him in this life and what it means to look to him as the final and climactic king. Um, So these events unfold for the purpose of both uh, giving us an example and for the purpose of pointing us forward to Christ. Uh, So we return to the text today, and then we're going to set the context in this way, and and we're we're going to do so with a reference to Wyoming. And I say that right now, just so if Trent gets excited later, we're not startled by that. Okay, so, so we're going to have just a brief reference to Wyoming here. But um, A while back, there was an article in the New York Times about how the pandemic had brought out a number of new and, and unfortunately, uh, very amateur adventurers to the, to the dangerous terrain of Wyoming's national parks and public lands. So, so during the pandemic, people who, who were restless and generally inexperienced in outdoor adventuring, they, they were coming in. Wyoming saw a unique influx of this. And, and I want to read for you just the introductory comments from this article. It begins like this. Kenna Tanner and her team can list the cases from memory. There was the woman who got tired and did not feel like finishing her hike. The campers in shorts during a blizzard. The base jumper misjudging his leap from a treacherous granite cliff face. The ill-equipped snowmobiler buried up to his neck in an avalanche. All of them were pulled by Ms. Tanner and the tip-top search and rescue crew from the rugged Wind River Mountain Range in the last year in this sprawling remote pocket of western Wyoming. And all of them, their rescuers said, were wildly unprepared for the brutal backcountry in which they were traveling. They were wildly unprepared for the brutal backcountry in which they were traveling. Now, let's make a a metaphorical jump here. Uh, But but I wonder if, as you reflect on seasons of hardship in your own life, I wonder if you could relate to an assessment like that. I I know I can for sure. Uh, we, We can very much face situations in our life where it seems like we've unfortunately worn our shorts and t shirts out into blizzard weather. Uh, we, we may not be in the, in the literal Wyoming wilderness, but life can hit hard and we can feel wildly unprepared for the brutal backcountry situations of life uh, that, we, that we find ourselves traveling through. And these experiences can be, can be any number of things. It may be a season of extreme physical difficulties in our life, a, me, a medical situation that maybe hits, hits very hard and we just aren't ready for it. Or, or maybe it's the experience of an extremely difficult relationship, uh, Maybe it's an experience of abandonment or betrayal. Uh, or it may be a time of unknowns in life when work slows down, the paychecks don't come in uh, like we were expecting them to come in. It may have been a period of consistent discouragement where, or as they say, the depression sets in so much that, that we stop loving what we normally love. Uh, there's a sense in which those clouds can gather in our lives in all kinds of different ways. And we can very much identify with the way this rescue worker describes the people she had to save. As she put it, they were wildly unprepared for the brutal backcountry in which they were traveling. Facing the wilderness of life, facing seasons of of this kind of backcountry, it can leave us exposed with a real sense of being unprepared, not least of all as things relate to our lives of following the Lord Jesus. We can be caught ill-equipped. I I just didn't expect it to be like this as I follow Jesus Christ through life. These uh, These times can come, and they can come hard and fast. Now, one of the amazing things about the Bible 
is that it provides for us this equipment that we need for the backcountry seasons of our life. Uh, through the Scriptures, we're given the sustaining and stabilizing truth, which equip us uh, so that when the, the terrain becomes treacherous, instead of finding ourselves ultimately without hope, instead, through the Scriptures, the Lord gives us the equipment we need to press on. Uh, so just to, to illustrate this, uh, some of you, many of you, will, will be familiar with the name Joni Erickson Tata. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, she's about 70 years old now, I think, but at the age of 17, a diving accident left her a quadriplegic. Uh, clearly, not much more could be uh, devastating than, than that kind of circumstance of, of life. That's, a, that's a, about as wildernessy as things can get to become a, a quadriplegic at the age of, at the age of 17. Uh, but through obvious physical struggles and, and bouts of significant depression, uh, Joni has persevered ultimately as a joyful and faithful Christian believer. She's been able to face this backcountry experience of her whole life uh, with extraordinary grace. And that's largely due to how the Lord has sustained her through the Scriptures. Uh, so, so, for example, in her own testimony, she makes this following comment about the Psalms. She says this. She says, The Psalms wrap nouns and verbs around our pain better than any other book. The Psalms wrap nouns and verbs around our pain better than any other book. And in other words, she's, she's recognizing that she's equipped for facing the hardships of life that she's facing from the Scripture. She's not finding herself like an, like an amateur camper who, who's in the midst of a blizzard with, with their swimming suit on. She, she's actually equipped. She has words for the trials of life she's facing. She's able to put words to that as a result of the, spirit, of the Scripture's equipment in her life. As a result, she's able to press on and she's able to press on well and in a way that's commendable. And then that's what the Scriptures do for us. They equip us for our journey of life under God as we trust in Him, even, even through those wilderness, uh, valley of the shadow of death kinds of experiences. And as we venture into the second episode of David's own wilderness wandering here, we find ourselves in, in another of those uniquely equipping places in the Scriptures. In, in these wilderness wanderings, in these wilderness episodes from David's life, we can be particularly trained in what it looks like to navigate difficult experiences in our lives of faith in a persevering kind of way. Now, now again, no doubt the narrative uh, that we read here, David is pressed in a, in a particular way. He's pressed in a unique way. Uh, no, no king is going to be out to kill us because he thinks we're trying to take his throne. Um, unless I suppose if one of you has a, has, a, has a relationship with King Charles that none of us are aware of, but... Uh, but that's not going to be happening to us. These experiences are unique. Uh, however, we do know hardship. And it's part of the magnificence of the Scriptures that the Lord speaks through David's own hardship to bring us sustaining truth in our lives. And, and, so, and so he does that this morning through this word. And, and with that kind of thing in mind, we'll look at these, we'll look at these verses, uh, verses 15 to 20 of chapter 21. Um, if you remember where, where we were last week, Last week we saw the first part of this chapter, and there was a case where David visited the priest at Nob, and through that the Lord's unique provision came to David's wilderness experience. <coughs> Excuse me. This, this time uh, we have an episode where David uh, faces really acute affliction, no doubt. The affliction is there, and ultimately what he experiences in this case is the Lord's protection. So David is rescued. Uh, last time affliction and provision, this time it's affliction and protection. Um, so let's look at the text. Uh, you can have, you have your eye on it as we go. It's always good to follow along. And the first thing we're going to pay attention to is verses 10 to 12. 
uh, where, where no doubt David's affliction is very evident. Uh, but in those verses, we can see that for David, a context of prior victory is now a place of present fear. A context of prior victory is now a place of present fear. So let me, let me just read those, those verses for us again, just those first three. Verse 10, uh, David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to King Achish of Gath. But Achish's servants said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David has ten thousands. Hear this. David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. Um, it's, it's worth noting, just as we start here in verse 10, that the narrator actually means for us to see a significant intensification in this situation as, as David gets to Gath. Um, we, we know this because, for example, back in chapter 19, we were told that, that David fled after his wife let him down through a window in their home. Remember when Saul's assassins were surrounding them outside? On that occasion, we were told that David fled. And then we were also told that David fled to Samuel later in chapter 19. In the beginning of chapter 20, we were told that David fled to his friend Jonathan in chapter 20. So a lot of fleeing going on there initially. However, it's interesting that he only went to the priest Ahimelech in the beginning of our chapter. That's the first time David's really done some significant moving without this escape word being used. So he, he went to Ahimelech. So, so we could think for just a moment that, that there's a decreasing level of intensity. He, he didn't flee to the priest at Nob. He just, he just went there. Uh, except that then as, as verse 10 begins, we, we actually see that instead of there being a decrease of intensity, there's then a, a renewed and even amped up increase. And we don't see this uh, in, the, in the CSB translation, in the English translation, uh, the ESV might have it. But, but in the Hebrew, verse 10 doesn't just read that David fled that day. Here in our section, it's, it's more intense than that, where the Hebrew reads that David rose and fled. So there's actually two action words put in there. David rose and fled. So, so his escape from the situation with the priest at Nob, at Nob is emphasized um, even more than his other escapes have been so far. He's, he's fled, fled, went. Now what's he doing? Well, he's rising and fleeing. So there's an intensification going on here. He didn't just go to Gath. He didn't just flee to Gath. He rose and fled there, which just underpins something of the intense vulnerability that David is beginning to experience during this time. So, so tensions were high. Tensions got a little bit lower, it seemed. He just uh, maybe ambled over to the priest uh, a little more than fled. But now here he is again, and things are, things are intensifying for him once again, um, which is very interesting just to note as, as, a, as an aside, even as we think about the wilderness experience of our own lives. Uh, and and, this, and this, is, uh, this is something just to be mindful of because, uh, because in our experience of wilderness situations in our own lives, it can seem for a while that as things amp up, we then come to a period of relief. And it can seem that that period of relief is going to be it then. Okay, we've, we've, we've got a little bit of a, re a reprieve. We can walk a little bit slow, more slowly for a little bit. And, and we don't expect these other things that can come up all of a sudden. And we find David intensified again in his pursuit. And, and that's just very much the way these things can work in our lives. Things are amped up. We feel the pressure of that. And then there's a period of ease. And then all of a sudden they're going way up again. And it's just helpful to know that that can be the case uh, as, we, as we go and experience these things. Uh, Julia told me when she was going through school at OHSU, and we were just talking about this again recently, she was saying one of the things that they talk about in the medical school is that you don't have to know all the diseases. You just have to know what normal looks like. 
And, and as we think about our own wilderness experience, that's something that the Scriptures help us with. We, we start to learn what normal looks like. There, there's those hardships where things are amped up, they seem to ease up, and then they can amp up even more again. And we see that reflected in David's own experience. That just helps us know when it happens to us. It's not entirely outside the orb of expectation, but this is how things often can be. And, and we'll see this kind of thing exemplified again just as we keep going here. Um, so, so, so the tension is rising for David. He rises and flees to, to, to Gath, uh, which immediately strikes us as the strangest possible move. Because it's not just that David is on the run and crossing into, you know, he's crossing into another country hoping that Saul can't extradite him or something like that. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a much more dangerous thing than that. And that David is going into enemy territory, uh, seeing as Gath is Goliath's hometown. Or I should say was Goliath's hometown. David is the one who killed the hero of Gath in that whole episode with Goliath back in chapter 17. Um, Gath is one of the five central cities of the Philistines, and, and, and David actually goes to the city where he, he's the one who took out their hero not that long ago. He rises and flees uh, from Saul's dominion and goes to the king of Gath. And we think, what a, what a strange thing. Why would David do this? And we can, we can work it out a little bit. It could be just that he's thinking that, that to be at odds with King Saul of Israel as he is could actually gain him some safety in Gath a kind of a mercenary position among the people of Gath. In fact, he's actually going to play this card two more times before 1 Samuel is over. He'll go uh, to Achish under, under the guise of a mercenary uh, soldier later on. Um, so too now, maybe, maybe King Achish will see David as an ally. Maybe Achish will let the whole murder of our battle hero Goliath thing go because he knows you know, David is a mighty warrior. It'd be nice to have him on our side. We know he's at odds with Saul. So maybe David was just thinking that this could be one of those uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend situations and I'll go to, I'll go to uh, Achish and maybe find some refuge there. Um, but things don't go that way. In verse 11, one of Achish's servants recognizes David right away. Uh, we're not told how he recognized him. Uh, maybe David was just carrying the sword of Goliath on his hip that he'd picked up from the priest in the last section. Who knows? Uh, but something tipped off the servant of King Achish that this person showing up is David, uh, whom the servant refers to as king of the land in verse 11. Isn't that interesting? He calls David king of the land, um, which is interesting because by all accounts, just politically speaking, Saul is still king of the land. Theologically speaking, Saul's been rejected, David's been anointed. But politically, socially speaking, Saul is still very much functioning as the king of the land. And, and just in passing, we won't spend a whole bunch of time on this, but I'll just give it to you to think about. It's worth noting that in the whole book of 1 Samuel, this is the only place where David is directly referred to as king, king of the land. Earlier uh, with Samuel, we had anointing language that was used, and, and Jonathan, he demonstrated that he knows David is God's king by his actions and, and other things he says. But we can't miss that the only person to straight out call David king directly like this in 1 Samuel is a Philistine. So, so, so the first confession of the kingship of God's anointed is from a Gentile. It's from a non-Israelite which has huge implications as we think about how, we, how, how we'll ultimately uh, see Christ being received and recognized when He comes. And I'll just leave that with you to, to ponder for your own afternoon meditation or study, whatever you'd like to do there. But, but it's significant. The, service re the servant recognizes David. He calls him king. 
Um, now, now, there's no way the servant knows about that secret anointing that took place or any of those kinds of things. Uh, he wouldn't have known about, about all of that. But the servant calls David king, and he does that, it seems, because he's made a connection with this song that people are singing about him. So whatever Saul's political position might be, he knows how the people feel about David. He knows this, this folk song that apparently has been circulating around since the Israelite women sang it back in chapter 18 after David's victory over Goliath. And the song goes, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousand. This is, this is the guy that song is written about, uh, the servant says to Achish. So the servant, he, he recognizes David, he, he appears kind of worked up as, as he should when he puts all this together, and he says, isn't this, this, this David, king of the land, they sing about this guy after he's defeated us, don't forget that, and, 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 and in this case, we should, we should probably be pretty concerned that he's decided to come and visit our town. After all, he did kill our own hero, Goliath. Um, and so it's, it's no surprise, but this servant, he doesn't seem happy at all that David's showing up. And in verse 12, we're told that David took all this to heart. So, so, so in other words, the, the tone of this servant's explanation of what's going on, the, the intention of the servant's comments, they weren't lost on David. He's very aware of, of apparent animosity in the servant's tone because we read in verse 12 that David, he didn't just say, oh yeah, that was me, it was a nice song, and, and, and we don't need to talk about that now. It's not, it's not really the time or the place. I mean, we are, we are here after all. He doesn't say that. In other, in, in, instead, David became very afraid, the text says, of, of King Achish of Gath. So David is overwhelmed in his heart by fear. And we read that, David is very afraid, and, and we're not really surprised by that at first pass, because David is in deep enemy territory, uh, he's been recognized as the, as the lyrical legend uh, that he was in terms of taking out Goliath. Uh, there's a sense in which we read this, we're not surprised David's so fearful. Uh, if we were in David's position, we would, we would no doubt be absolutely terrified, we'd be catatonic in, in a state like that. Uh, but, but, but I'm me, I would be scared. This is David. This is David. And so we're not initially surprised that David's afraid until we really start thinking about who this individual is that we're speaking about. We are speaking about David here. David. Remember back in chapter 17, it was the Philistines who struck fear into the hearts of Israel. Chapter 17 told us that two different times. And who's the one who wasn't afraid but who delivered them from their fears? Well, David is the one who delivered them from their fears. And not only that, but then in instance after instance, David is the one who goes out and victoriously fights against the Philistines successfully. Time and time again, he leads special forces military campaigns against the Philistines, and he finds himself victorious. And not only that, but there was that whole episode with the, with the bride price for Saul's daughter, Michael, if you remember that Strange little scenario there. But, but Saul basically told David, you've got to go take out 100 Philistines if you want to marry my daughter. And what does David do? He says, well, that's a little terrifying. I'd rather just take out seven. No, he goes and takes out 200. He doubles Saul's number. Right? So, so we think about David here, and we are not struck by the fact that here's a man who's afraid of the Philistines. David's history is one of, with God's help, absolutely decimating the Philistines at every single turn. And yet here we're told that David, who delivered the people from, from Philistine fear personally himself, now David isn't just afraid, but he's quite literally in the Hebrew, David is abundantly afraid. He's extremely afraid, the text says. And, and as we pause and reflect on this, and while we feel badly for David, still there's actually some, some, some very useful encouragement here. 
Because when we find ourselves in the wilderness experiences of life, when we're in the back country of our own lives, if you like, it is not uncommon to have contexts of prior victories. It's not uncommon to have contexts of, of prior exercises of strength and experiences of success and all of those kinds of things. It's not uncommon in the wilderness for those to prove to be places of present fear for us. For David, the Philistine context had been one of total victory. Now it's one of emphasized fear, of abundant fear. So, so think about this. We face certain circumstances, and given those circumstances normally, you know, we, we know ourselves. We'd be ready to stand in them. We'd be ready to fight. We'd be ready to persevere. We'd be ready to do well, be approved by others. We've done so historically many times. But for whatever reason, we face the same kind of situation again or a very similar one. And this time, it's not victory that we're feeling. It's not strength that we're experiencing. But instead, we're overwhelmed by fear. We're afraid. It's not winning. It's a sense of extreme vulnerability that we begin to experience. It's this time when things are different and we're feeling really, really, really weak and overwhelmed by the possibility of these bad things totally defeating us. We can have those, those kinds of experiences. It may be something like uh, something like this. I've, I've always been able, we might say, to navigate relationships with ease. And I've always been able to read people really well, maybe. I've always been able to interact in ways that are fruitful. Uh, friendship comes easy, whatever it might be. But, but then maybe in an important relationship, we find that it takes a turn. And it's a, it's a wilderness situation. It becomes that way. And while I can always handle this, I find myself right now being terrified. What, what in the world do I do? Typically, I'm at ease in these situations. I have, I have strength for relationship situations. But here I find myself in a place where I'm not at ease, I'm confused, I'm vulnerable, and I have a strange sense of my own real weakness. One, quite frankly, that I'm just not used to having. And things aren't looking good. Have you had that kind of thing happen? I've had that kind of thing happen. Places where we feel typically comfortable and well put together, all of a sudden we find ourselves in those same situations feeling extremely weak and, quite frankly, terrified. And, and while it's not pleasant, we read a passage like this, and at least we can take heart knowing that it's not just me. And it's not just you. Right? This is how things go in the wilderness sometimes. We need to know what normal can look like. Places of former victory, situations of personal ability, all of a sudden they can become a context for fear to rise in our life. David is arguably one of the most mighty Philistine defeaters to date. Maybe Samson is a rival, but, but only him. David is, is in the presence of people he's defeated royally many times, and here he's abundantly fearful. And so in the wilderness, the context of prior victory can be a place of present fear. And instead of that causing us to spin out, thinking that my life of faith is over, I must have done everything wrong, I don't think I can see my way through this, it's all over for me, instead we can say, I'm actually not alone in this. This is part of the Christian experience, this is part of the experience of those who've gone before in these lives of faith. King David himself had these very same kind of situations. So, context of prior victory and strength, they can be places of present fear in the wilderness. Secondly, uh, if we look at verse 13, uh, we can see that, that things don't actually get any better as we get into verse 13. There's still all this affliction because if in verses 10 and 12 we had the context of prior victories, a place of present fear, so there's this kind of internalization going on there. David's heart is troubled. Now we have a context where it would normally uh, promote a, a claim and praise 
Now that context is a place of humiliation. So the context of prior acclaim is a place of present humiliation. Um, so so let's, let's work this out a little bit. Uh, in, in that last section, David experiences the lowness in, in, the, in the internal nature of his own conscience and psyche. He's, he's afraid in his heart. Uh, but now that lowness, it manifests in an external way, in a way others can see it in verse 13. Um, so, so let me read that again for us. Actually, I'll read 12 and 13 just to, to catch the flow. So David took this to heart. He became very afraid of King Achish of Gath, verse 13. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. So we know David's afraid. We know he's been recognized. And, and David apparently hatches this plan. He pretends to be insane. The word here for pretending to be insane is just a, a general word used in the Old Testament to speak of basically being out of control. The prophet Jeremiah uses it multiple times, uh, sometimes to speak about people strum, stumbling around in drunkenness, other times to describe uh, a chariot being driven very recklessly through the city. Uh, it, it, it's just a term that conveys a total lack of self-control, or at least apparent lack of self-control. And then this is the charade that David puts on. In David's life, it actually is an expression of self-control as he's putting this on very purposefully. He's, he's playing this off, and he plays it off well. So, so he's drawing all over the city gates. He's a total public nuisance, pretending to be a madman like he is. And he lets saliva run down his beard, we're told. Now, that seems like a really strange detail to include, this, this beard dribbling problem. It's actually kind of gross. Uh, why in the world would David do this? And then in doing this, why in the world would the narrator feel the need to tell us? It seems like a very odd detail to include, especially uh, for us as, as Western readers. Uh, because in, in, in the culture of the ancient Near East, this isn't quite as strange as it might at first come off. In the culture of the ancient Near East, and scholars comment about this at length, um, treating a man's beard badly is extremely offensive. And, and especially, as weird as this is, especially with spit. In fact, if, if someone spit on your face, you would be considered unclean in Israel for seven days. Okay, and then as far as the beard goes, uh, well, actually, we'll see this in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 10, if memory serves. Uh, men come back from enemy territory with their beard shaved, and that's actually a reason to go to war with that, with that, with that other nation. So, so obviously, there's some unique sensitivities here. There's this behavior. It's not just an act that's, that's odd and kind of gross. It's actually an a extremely humiliating thing to do, culturally speaking, for David. Both the, both the spit on the beard, the defiling of his beard. Um, surely, a sane man would never voluntarily do that. That's, that's the perception that, that, that he's attempting to convey here. And, and we know it's a big deal because King Achish buys the act which we'll talk about next. But, but what we can just see here is that David isn't only fearful in his heart as he faces this wilderness threat, but now he's placing himself in this position of public humiliation as he works really hard not to get killed. He's, he's postured in a way that quite frankly looks foolish and is embarrassing for him. Right? And, and it's not just that he's publicly humiliated, but he's publicly humiliated in the presence of the people who have been the reason for his previous public acclaim. 
You notice the, 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 the connection there, the song that we have in this passage? The reason everybody's singing about David is because he is the defeater of the Philistines. The Philistine context is one that has caused people to praise David as he returns from war. So, so the framework of David's praise here, Philistine defeat, it now has become a context for his total public humiliation in, in his Philistine threat. And then we can just sit with that. There's a parallel even here to, to some of Jesus' own experience in Jesus' public ministry. You remember that, the, the crowd, the location where Jesus was once publicly uh, lauded and praised and people were gathering around him. Ultimately, that group flipped on him and mocked him publicly. So from public praise to public shame, that's something that happens in the wilderness. That's something very real in the ministry of Jesus himself. And maybe, and maybe you felt that. Maybe a context in which you enjoyed a, a good reputation is now ruined and social accolades have changed to social shame and that is just painful. And we wonder, how in the world could this be? This shouldn't be happening. Or, or we can feel so destroyed by the fact that it is happening. But again, we read something like this and it prepares us for the backcountry. This is, this is wilderness training what's here. This is how things go sometimes in the wilderness of life following the Lord. What used to be a source for public accolade now becomes a, a context for public shame. And as this happens, we're equipped by a story like this. We're equipped uh, by noting Jesus' own experience of this uh, flipping over of things and it allows us to take heart. A context of prior acclaim is now a place of very real humiliation. We, we remember how Jesus went from, from, the, from the praises of the crowds to the absolute pain and public shame of the cross. And, and while we can face this and be saddened by it, we also can recognize that we don't have to be overrun by it. Because we see that, that again, in our lives of faith, we're not alone in this kind of experience. It puts us not just in the company of King David, but it puts us in the good company of Jesus himself. In fact, the humiliation of Christ in his own ministry is expected to serve as a paradigm for us as we go through life in this world. So often we are called not to be removed from the world and all we're called to be, but we're called to be out in the world for Jesus. And what happens so often as we're out in the world for Jesus seeking to persevere in a faithful way? What, ha what happens as we're out there? What happens is, you, is you're sitting in school, all these different things. We can endure some humiliation because of who we're with. We can endure some humiliation because we're with God's anointed king. Then that humiliation can seem very devastating. It can be very much a wilderness experience for us. But we get into this and we see this is actually a paradigm that runs through the scriptures. This is something that we should expect as we go on. And rather than this be something that is ultimately devastating for us, we actually see that there's a great word of encouragement here as things come to an end in this, in this story. There's a word of encouragement here for us. And so let's, let's look at that now in verses 14 and 15. So, so we've moved from, from a context of prior victory is now a place of present fear, a context of prior acclaim or, or acceptance, praise, whatever word we want to use there, now is a place of present humiliation and then we see in these last two verses, the context of prior deliverance remains the place of present rescue. The context of prior deliverance remains the place of present rescue. So let me just read verses 14 and 15 again. Verse 14, Achish is speaking. Look, you can see the man is crazy, Achish said to his servants. Why did you bring him to me? 
do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? Next verse, so David left Gath. Aspects of the end of this, this episode certainly seem humorous uh, to, a, to a certain degree. It really sounds like Achish is suffering from a, from a mild case of royal administrative burnout. It just sounds like he needs a trip to the coast for the weekend. Because uh, they bring him, they, they they bring him David. David's acting like he's out of his mind. And what what does Achish say to his men? I got enough of you crazy people around me. Why are you why are you bringing me this crazy guy? I've got to deal with you people all the time. And now you're bringing this other fellow who's, who's obviously having all kinds of trouble. I don't want him around. I don't have time for this. Don't bring him to me. So so it's just funny. There's a kind of sarcastic dig here on Achish's part, even even with his own servants around. I mean, what would they have? How would they have responded? Do you think he's talking about? Is he is he upset with us? Do you think he's do you think he's talking about us? He doesn't want us around. Maybe we should leave him alone a little more. Right? So Achish is just done with it. He doesn't have time for, for this for this crazy person to be in his to be in his court. He doesn't want him around. So so, so it's a funny response in a sense when they bring David to him. But but this does surprise us because David would have been an absolute trophy kill for Achish. Right? But what a claim to fame. Maybe Achish could have even gotten his own song. Saul killed his thousands, David his ten thousands, and Achish killed him. He could have had his own verse in that song that they were singing. Right? That, that would have been a great byline for Achish's next political donor dinner, whatever it might have been, right? To be the guy who took out the guy. Right? But instead he just sends David away. And we read that and we're left with our heads spinning a bit, not unlike how we were left astounded last week when, when Doeg the Edomite is just present there in that priestly situation and he does nothing. The king of Gath did nothing to the one who killed the hero of Gath. It's worth noting in verse 13 that, that if you look back one verse, it literally reads that David pretended to be insane and the Hebrew says, in their hand. Not in their presence, but in their hand. In other words, the Philistines had David in some level of custody. In fact, when David writes Psalm 56, which we'll look at next week, he gives us more details about the context when he says that he wrote the psalm when the Philistines had seized him, which is an under arrest kind of word. So so David is at the mercy of these enemies. He's in their custody, except what happens? Well, he's just just let go because he seems insane and Achish doesn't doesn't particularly have any time for him. No, no, No trophy kill, he's just released. And why is that? It, it can't just be that Achish is, is annoyed, uh, why, why, being the reason why, why David is released. He's, he's, he's too much of an extraordinary catch to have that be the case. Why, why is David just released? Well, when David writes his Psalm 34 song about this, he tells us exactly why this happened. Whatever's going on in Achish's mind, we don't know. But ultimately, we do know what happened because David sings about it. Psalm 34, what does he say? This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him, and then what does he say? He rescued me from all my fears. This poor man cried, the Lord heard him, he rescued me from all my fears. So so put this together, in a context where David was once victor, he's now abundantly fearful. And in a context that promoted David's praise, victory over the Philistines, he's now captive and he's humiliated. But in that context, the Lord who gave him victory historically and who causes him to be lifted up instead of brought down in all those past situations of victory, in that context, while different things seem to be happening for David immediately, the Lord is still working the same thing ultimately for him. The Lord is bringing David to a place of rescue. Who beat Goliath? 
Well, not ultimately David and his slingshot. He won because the Lord of hosts fought against Goliath. Who beat Achish? Not David and his dribbly beard. No, the Lord delivered David. Right? The context of prior deliverance is still the place of present rescue. It might look a little bit different. It might, it might be a little more scary than before, but the Lord is still protecting his own. And then this is something that we can relate to very much. This is the great encouragement of the truth that's here. Whether we're winning or whether we're fearful in the desert, whether, whether we're applauded or whether we're humiliated, why are we always okay? Is it because the backcountry gets friendlier? No, here the backcountry got worse. Why is David okay? Why are we okay? Well, because in circumstances high or low, the Lord is the one who protects and rescues. And we just need to be mindful of that. Privately, in our hearts, like David, we may be in a hard place, fear and all those kinds of things rising up. In our public lives, things can get very difficult too. Public reputation ruined, people saying bad stuff, people knowing bad stuff. External things can get bad. But ultimately, for those who are the Lord's, there is a truth that remains constant. He rescues. He delivers. He's the one who preserves. He's the one who protects. He doesn't let us go, whether it's high days of victory or low days of wilderness wandering. Isn't it easy to typically see the Lord's hand in the high days of victory? Oh, God was really at work in that season of my life. But then here we are in the lower days. And we need to be quick to recognize God's rescuing action in those seasons too. He's the one who is protecting. He's the one who is rescuing. Which on a, on a, on a big scale is exactly what Jesus says to his disciples about what it means to belong to him. What, what does Jesus say about those who follow him? In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. So that life is a gift from Christ himself and they will never perish. So there's no losing for the one who's with Christ ultimately. And then what does Jesus say? No one will snatch them out of my hand. Nothing can come get them from that eternal life that I give to them. Paul, who writes the commentary on this, makes it just as plain when he says in Romans 8, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not Doeg the Edomite, not Achish king of Gath, not the present situation that brings abundant fear to our own hearts, not the public situation that can seem so humiliating, not past situations that can seem so defining for us, not future situations that we don't don't even know enough to worry about them yet. Nothing can separate us from the protection of the rescuing and preserving love of God secured ultimately in the cross of Christ. So in the place of past victories, even when those places get very dark with big mountains, deep valleys, scary things in them, even there when things turn, the Lord remains present to protect. Do you need His present rescuing power this morning? You can go home and, and get on your knees and tell the Lord that. That's exactly what David did for next week. Psalm 56, what does David say? Be gracious to me, God, for a man is trampling me. Ever prayed that way? He fights and oppresses me all day long. My adversaries trample me all day, for many arrogantly fight against me. And then he says this, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. I'm afraid I will trust in you. And we take that with us as we go out into our lives each day, recognizing that the Lord who constantly preserves us is the Lord to whom we regularly return as the one in whom we can trust. Let's pray. 
Uh, so, Father, we pray that we would be renewed by this in a way that, that gives us a persevering kind of faith, in a way that prepares us for the various seasons that we face in our own lives. We praise you as the one who protects us. You are the one who sustains. You're the one. Ultimately, we rest in whether the days are dark or the days are bright. We know that nothing can separate us from your love in Christ. And we pray that would be a truth that is brought fresh to our hearts this morning. Uh, no doubt your word comes to us in your perfect timing. And if we're speaking about these things, we need these things. And may it be a refreshment to us as we sit under it today. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.